Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, in city after city, calls for justice continue to fill the streets. I'm frustrated and I'm angry. And, um, and I feel powerless. We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the vi- victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. Many of those who are spreading violence in our cities are supporters of an organization called Black Lives Matter, or BLM. The killing of George Floyd, caught on cell phone video, catapulted our country into a summer of protests with millions of Americans pushing for, demanding long overdue change. And there were some immediate changes symbolically to be sure. But what about policies? What about policing itself? What actually has changed since George Floyd was killed seven months ago? It was nearly a year ago before her father's funeral when I spoke with Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's young daughter. She looked at me, she said, My daddy changed the world. We can see how right she was if, if we have the courage to act as a Congress. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I'm joined as always by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we are having an ongoing series of engaging conversations with engaging people, and none are more engaging than the person we are going to speak with today who has made a career and a life work of grappling with some of the most contentious, difficult, acrimonious issues in our society, particularly race and the role of race, dividing us politically, dividing us culturally, economically, socially, and yet has brought to these issues, which people literally in the United States have gone to war over. But Ted Johnson, who we're going to speak with today, has injected into that endless dark pool of acrimony, a level of hope and respect and measured calm. So Emma, why don't you tell us a little bit about his background before we dive into a much warmer pool of conversation with him. Sure. So Theodore R. Johnson, or Ted, is the Director of Fellows at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. His work, as Zachary was just saying, explores the role that race plays in electoral politics, issue framing, and disparities in policy outcomes. Previously, he was a National Fellow at New America and also a Research Manager at Deloitte, uh, not to mention also a retired commander in the U.S. Navy, following a two-decade career that included service as a White House Fellow, military professor at the U.S. Naval War College and speechwriter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You can find his writing on race, politics, and society across many publications, including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and most recently, The Bulwark. His book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, is coming out in paperback in June. So let's talk with Ted. All right, let's do it. So Ted, it's wonderful to have you today. Thank you for being part of the Progress Network. One of the first events we did about bridging our political divides we did with you and with David Brooks at the end of 2020. In the interim, we've all lived our 18 to 20 months of life. You've published a book. Uh, You've been lauded and, and recognized for a lot of the work that you have been doing and presumably are doing now and will continue to do until... You can draw breath, which I hope is the same for all of us. And you're a really unusual voice in the pantheon of voices, uh, particularly given that you take on some of the 
really more intractable or seemingly intractable divisions within American society, you know, race and the court and law and voting rights. And you do so with the remarkable amount of grace. Mm. And I say that because, or I, I've tried to draw attention to that because part of what I've been trying to do with the Progress Network, but part of what I think is so sadly lacking in our contemporary political public debate is a sensibility. It's very hard to preach that. It's very hard to inculcate that. But if you don't start from that, it's really hard to get on the right track. And it, in my experience of, of listening to you and observing you, you've been really adamant in your own way about a sensibility of grace, of humility, mm -hmm. of, of trying to communicate, without which it's almost impossible to then communicate. So I guess my, my softball first question to you around all that is, do you feel that that works mm. or do you end up feeling like you're just this lonely voice, not crying at all or shouting in the wilderness, just trying to say, hey, everybody, let's, let's sit down and, you know, break bread and have a conversation. Do you feel that it works? Yeah, a great question. And, and always good to be with you. Um, you know, I guess it depends on, um, so it works for me. There's no doubt about that. And what I am less sure of is if it works as a way of spreading a message to many folks in the same way that if I were angry or, or very emotional in my writing, if it would spread similarly, you know, um, when especially talking about race, if you are pissed off at the world, there are lots of ears. Uh, there's a big audience for your anger. Um, if you approach people who might be racist with empathy and grace, there's less of an audience for that um, because it requires you to be vulnerable. And we have a society, frankly, that doesn't appreciate vulnerability in the public sphere um, that, that um, rather rewards like sensationalism and, and emotions. And I think you need both. I think you need folks that are very passionate about the thing they care about and bring that passion to the forum. But then you also, I, I hope, need folks that are willing to take a breath and be graceful to the people on the other side of the table that you need for democracy. Um, so, you know, I'll say two things about this. One is that almost all of my writing, especially around difficult topics around race or hyperpartisanship or inequality, I often lead with a, a vignette of some sort, autoethnographic, you know, something from my life or, or a historical example to bring the humanity to the problem first. I, I think when people, people are more likely to connect to stories and then find an insight in those stories than they are to believe the data or believe like the logical philosophical argument about something. And that that then changes their hearts and, and mind. So I lean heavily on personal story on, on narratives. The, the second thing is that the, the old maxim in public policy that you are hard on institutions and soft on people. I firmly believe that. And so if we are to have a democracy of 330 million people from different customs and cultures, different races and ethnicities, religions, languages, regions, et cetera, then we can't look at half the country as being anti-American, undemocratic, unworthy of the experiment. We have to look at them as our partners in this thing or else democracy doesn't work at all for any of us. And so I try to, I, I spend a lot of my time making the case to people that folks wouldn't suspect someone like me would talk to, but I go to, the, I want to talk with the right about racial inequality and structural racism. You know, I want to talk to the left about like forbearance and incrementalism, uh, because I, I think, you know, this is the, this is the way societies work that you have to find some kind of middle ground, principled middle ground, but some kind of middle ground to move forward. And I think you do that by putting flesh and bone on ideas and instead of just relying on frameworks and theories alone. I'm really glad that you brought up the be hard on structures and easy on people line because I wrote it down from your book. I'm staring at it right now <laughs> in my notes because I, I liked it so much. So, you know, given that one way you might characterize the national conversation around race, around equity, around inclusion would be easy on structures, hard on people. Right. <laughs> um, so tell me if you agree with that. But also, if that's true, do you see the national conversation advancing or are we going in circles? Because there are certainly people out there, you know, we're two years on from the George Floyd protest now, and there doesn't seem to be like a whole lot of action. And there are people who are saying, like, we're not going anywhere. So is that how you see things or how do you see things? Yeah. So, look, it, it, I think we are operating in a political environment that incentivizes conflict. And, and we have too many politicians that instead of finding 
areas for compromise and then being brave in principle to fight for progress, they see their prospects as tied to their ability to demonize the other. So they are hard on people and they are hard on people that have a different letter after their name, whether it's D or R, they're hard on people in a different class, hard on people of different races, ethnicities, because they are rewarded for that harshness. Um, if we look at the primaries happening around the country right now, the pragmatists, the centrists, the moderates are not the ones that are that are on the headlines. It's the folks that are to the polls, to the left or the right, that are getting all the attention. Um, and, and oftentimes those um, folks tend to be very uncompromising in their views, not because they're married to some principle around like taxes or energy or something, but because they're, they're anti the other side. Um, the other side being not the other side's view of how an institution should be structured, but the people on the other side. And all the polls bear this out. Pew, Gallup, you know, YouGov, et cetera, they all show that partisans are more likely to view their partisan opponents as existential threats to democracy, as like bad for America, as evil and unprincipled. So being hard on people is politically advantageous. But it's terrible for our society and it's terrible for building a, a democratic culture. Um, meanwhile, the institutions don't change at all. And so we are like stuck with the status quo. No one is, is doing better by not addressing the reforms these institutions need. Uh, and, and meanwhile, we're, we're being spooled up to like hate one another more. And so it's discontent with the system, increasing discontent with one another, and nothing being done about either, either of those problems by, by those in the main. Um, but I, I would like to point out, just to suggest that I'm not completely pessimistic here, there are some bright lights in, in, in journalism, in, in the academy, in government, in regular public life, who are bucking the, the expectation that they're supposed to demonize other folks, that they're supposed to toe the party line, no matter the issue, that they're um, not supposed to have nuanced and, and uh, you know, detailed views about things. And hopefully we will create a, some sort of framework that rewards those folks for standing on principle instead of rewarding those folks who are just looking to, to make enemies of their neighbors. You know, part of it is the absence of equally compelling platforms for non-outrage. Mm. You know, we, we created the Progress Network to sort of be that, uh, but in no way is this platform in any way commensurate with platforms of outrage, either in size, scale, or reach. And no matter how well it does, it's unlikely that it ever would be, right? Because it, mm -hmm. it, it lacks those key ingredients for immediacy, nor is it about fame and celebrity, right? That's not really about outrage. It's just about the fame machine, which is its own beast that needs to be fed with a similar sort of immediacy, right? You, you can't stay famous for long unless you feed the fame machine. And sort of on the uh, cup half empty, I try to make sure I'm you know looking at both cups, as it were. <laughs> Two years on from Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd, which were, by most accounts, the largest public protest movement or the largest public activation of energies demanding both awareness and change that has ever happened per capita in American history, right? Far more than assembled at any point during the 1960s, either protesting the Vietnam War or agitating in favor of civil rights and voting. Tonight, cries of Black Lives Matter and hands up, don't shoot. Hands up, don't shoot. Echoing from coast to coast. The largest day of demonstrations for George Floyd yet. But two years on, it's almost impossible to show much in the way of constructive action. And with uh, fear clearly rising in most urban centers in the United States about rising crime, and we can talk about whether or not that fear is itself fueled by a political perspective as well as a media perspective that, you know, loves mm -hmm. stories of, oh, oh my God, you know, someone just got X and X is really bad. What do we make of that? I mean, it, 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 it seems like it was such an intense moment of now is the time and yet, two years on, it seems much more ephemeral and, and much more hard to grasp what changed other than maybe more intolerance on both sides. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there was really a moment after George Floyd's murder, um, certainly June through, I'd say, late August, early September of 2020, where every state in the union, weeks on end, 
every day, Black Lives Matter, racial justice sort of marches in, in places where there are no Black people. <laughs> you know, like Idaho, they're having racial justice marches. Um, you know, and not just one, like multiple. Mitt Romney is taking selfies in the middle of D.C. saying Black Lives Matter, which would have been unthinkable just four or five years ago. So it's undeniable that the movement changed the culture. What is also undeniable is that politicians seized on the moment and weaponized it to turn us against one another. Um, I, I do not believe that there were folks who took, who, who fed the division because they held deeply principled views about, you know, the, the, the need to address rioting or, you know, the agents of the state before we talk about racial justice. I think most folks, the provocateurs saw this as an opportunity to take advantage of the chaos, uh, to push their worldview to the exclusion, to the detriment of others. And so it's too bad that in such a moment, there wasn't a leader that arose from the moment or leaders that had a message of unity um, and that insisted uh, that that our government do what the declaration states, you know, derive its power from the consent of the governed, you know, heed the will of the people. And it, this was the other thing about this, this moment in, in the summer of 20 is before then, before Floyd is, is murdered, you know, Ahmaud Arbery is killed by vigilantes in Georgia and, and Breonna Taylor is killed by police in a no-knock raid. There's a global pandemic that is, is happening. Um, people are trapped in their homes, social distancing, restaurants are closing, you can't go outside. There was just this, this plea, I think, and the, the economy had collapsed. I mean, I, there was a real moment for maybe the next Lincoln, the next king to emerge from this chaos and help usher America into its 250th birthday in what, four years from now. And instead, immediately, the pandemic is politicized and, and used as a cudgel to beat each other with. Immediately, the deaths of Arbery and Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd are grounds for, for whether or not we need to address demonstrators and protesters or whether we need to talk more seriously about racial justice. And then after this summer of solidarity is what I call it, um, we have an election where the loser doesn't concede, where there's lies about voter fraud and election you know, fraud and, uh, and even an attempt to overturn the election results from the states all the way to Congress, and then January 6th insurrection. And so in, in, a, in a moment that should have been the thing that brings us together, most political scientists will say the things that unite nations are often when you go to war because everyone knows who the bad guys are. Um, but if a pandemic isn't enough to unite us, if, you know, agents of the state conducting a public execution of a citizen isn't enough to unite us, if, if having the highest participation in a presidential election in 120 years isn't enough to bring us together over the need to protect democracy and be proud of what we accomplished in a pandemic, and instead leads us to a capital insurrection and, um, and a doubling down of our, our you know, entrenched positions on the polls. You know, I don't know what, what, what to make of, of the, move, the various movements and the various issues that have, have arisen in the country, except to say that we have a crisis of character. We have a crisis of leadership that, that needs to be filled before institutions or people follow. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Hey, it's Emma. 
They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In a remarkable show of solidarity, protests against racism and police tactics are showing up around the world. Sunday's demonstration in London formed up outside the American embassy. But all weekend, there have been protests like this around the world. In Paris, they marched. And in Rome, silent crowds took a knee. In Sydney, Australia, the focus was on Aboriginal people beaten or killed in custody. So, Ted, I'm wondering, you know, given everything that you just said and also what you mentioned about, you know, there are protests in Idaho where there aren't any Black people. I'm wondering about, like, the way that the protests, regardless of the, you know, ephemeralness of all of this and how how it seemed to kind of disappear two years later, even in Greece, you can, you know, where I live, you can walk around and there's graffiti, like BLM graffiti on walls. There are not a lot of black people in Greece. So I'm wondering about like, if the causes and conditions are slightly changed in the future, maybe if we have a little bit of a better leader in the white house, could you see like the, the way that the, the protests have hopefully maybe burned themselves into or resting in our collective consciousness in a way that with another flashpoint, something could actually happen? That's a good question. I, I mean, I would like to think so. I, 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 it's undeniable that the world has changed, not, not just America, as you mentioned. I mean, the, the world has changed because of Black Lives Matter, that, that movement, in much the same way that the world changed because of the Cold War slash civil rights movement between you know the 30s into the 60s. And so I, I, that's meaningful. And I do think that there is more of an appetite to discuss maybe racial inequality today because of Black Lives Matter than there was a few years ago. What, what I don't think is resolved is what to do about it. And I think the what to do about the inequality that maybe more people accept is now that's the new arena, or maybe it's the, the arena that's always been, but it's now, okay, so what's the policy? What's the law? What's the you know Supreme Court holding? What's the executive order? that we can weaponize so that we can make the other side seem like they're not as dedicated to the cause. You know, I mean, they're after several of these incidents, you know, the shooting of the nine black parishioners during Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina, and and other like kinds of things, both Republicans and Democrats took to the floor of the Senate and and Congress to to talk about the role that racism is playing in in society. The only black Republican in the Senate, um, Tim Scott, spent three days talking about what it's like being a black man in the Senate from South Carolina and the racism he experienced. But then as soon as we start talking about police reform after George Floyd's murder, Democrats and Republicans can't can't get it together. Um, if someone on the progressive side brings up reparations, then all out warfare uh, on the between the parties. If we talk about affirmative action, that's going before the Supreme Court um, in the next term. And it, despite just having been there, you know, a couple of terms ago. So it's the it's the, the policy fights are now the remain the grounds or will become even more so the grounds for partisan conflict, um, even if the culture has accepted that racism is real. The, the last thing I'll say on this is, the, and, and you know, here with all the school board fights around like critical race theory, whether it's being taught or not, if polling, I, I live in Virginia, the polling shows that something like two thirds of Virginians actually want their kids to learn about the civil rights movement, about slavery, about Jim Crow, about the Holocaust. Like they want to, them to learn history, but they also voted in a governor who immediately signed an executive order saying critical race theory should not be taught in schools. Our kids should be taught that they're inherently racist or, or something like, like this. And so there's this, this passion around critical race theory but there's a thirst for an accurate telling of our history that's more inclusive 
Um, and so in this way, the civil rights movement won because now people don't think it's good to avoid talking about slavery. But then once that was converted into the political arena, we are more divided than ever, because now if we talk about it in this particular way, that's critical race theory. And that is no longer allowed. Something like, you know, a dozen states have passed laws that forbid the, the teaching of critical race theory. At, at the same time, the, the public wants more conversations about our history and race. You know, the pushback against the defense of critical race theory as a way of saying, look, you, you can't understand American history, just like you can't understand multiple countries' history like Brazil and Europe without understanding the profoundly racial dimensions, the impact of slavery, the way in which that was woven into capitalism and social structures. And, and that wasn't just true of the slave-owning South, it was true of the entire economic system of the United States before the Civil War, and in many ways, partly true of the economic system of the United States in the 20th century. The, the pushback is, though, that it's the totalizing lens, right? It's saying that this is the fundamental truth of society that all other things have to be viewed in the context of, that it has to be the overarching framework uh, that, that people then do push back on. They're like, no, no, it's, it's a framework. And so we're having this discussion uh, at around the time when the leaked potential decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, the Alito, Justice Alito's decision was leaked. And we don't know yet uh, what the outcome of this is going to be in the weeks ahead and whether or not by the time people are listening, there'll be a, a new turn of the wheel and a new plot twist in this, let alone what the actual decision is going to say. Tonight, reaction to the draft opinion could be heard from coast to coast. What do we want? Some described hearing the news that millions could lose access to an abortion as feeling like a gut punch. I'm just shocked and appalled. I just wondered at what point our country became a country where people's voices weren't heard anymore. The majority of Americans are for pro-choice. While others cheered the draft Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. As the science says, abortion is murder, and I feel that way, period. I'm, I'm raising this in the context of the critical race theory question because... You know, we pivot from two years ago where Black Lives Matter was the, the you know, fundamental organizing principle of a lot of social justice movements. And now we're kind of thrust back into a Roe v. Wade abortion women's right to choose, which is a whole other lens, right? It's, it's gender and who controls and who decides, you know, autonomy of women's bodies versus rights of fetuses. And yes, there's a whole academic world called intersectionality, which tries to say, Oh, they're all sort of true. You know, it's all about gender and it's all about race or or it's and we have to find a way in which it's all about all those things. But it does raise this issue of like, unless you're an academic, uh, intersectionality as an idea is is not a is not a winning political theme, right? It's not like when well, no one's going to go to the polls voting for their intersectionality candidate. Uh, so how do you respond to this? Because you look at all these things. You you wrote a lot about Kachansky Brown Jackson and and the hearings you know, whether or not she, she was on the court at the time, this decision wouldn't matter given the, the political dynamics of the vote. So how do you approach this issue of like, suddenly people are going to be not only like leaving aside the Black Lives Matter, but if this continues, we're going to be entering this period that we really haven't been in in the United States since the 70s, where kind of gender and women's rights or whatever, however we decide that suddenly becomes the thing. Mm. You know, I don't know. I, it, like right after Trump was elected, um, the Women's March, I forgot what the formal right. name of it. Right. Yeah, that was like a massive with like the, the pink hats and everything. January 17th. That's right. Yeah, it was. I think that was maybe the largest demonstration in the nation's capital ever. Um, and so we're, we actually like have already done this oscillation. You know, it was sort of Black Lives Matter and then Trump is elected. And then there's um, women. And frankly, um, the immigration policy community was very fired up about some of the immigration policies, especially around like separating kids in, in cages and stuff that took attention off of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, I think. And then, of course, there's another set of killings uh, that that moves the attention back. And so we, we are in a culture war of souls. We're, we're like trying to determine what it means to be American, who qualifies, and the extent to which um, inclusion socially and protection legally, th that these things are extended to a very large nation. I think... Katanji Brown Jackson is actually a, a good, I mean, talking about intersectionality, I think this is, it's sort of 
she's symbolic of, of the meeting of the two, the reception. What well, one, the political decision to for Biden to say that he was going to name a black woman to the Supreme Court should he be elected was a political and a social decision that had cultural effects. The hearing that she received that was extremely contentious at points, uh, accusing her of being soft on child porn offenders and being unable to tell the difference between a man and a woman or being unable to define a, a woman. Um, this, These were political and social decisions that have cultural effects. Um, the fact that it looks like Roe is going to be overturned and come July, a month or so after the decision is out, the progressive wing of the Supreme Court is going to be three women, a Hispanic woman, a black woman, and a Jewish woman. And, and a court that has just overturned Roe will probably revisit maybe Obergefell and same-sex marriage, will definitely take on affirmative action. And the face of the progressive movement on the court, again, is going to be intersectional. It's going to be female women and racial slash ethnic minorities. So that has, you know, the way we got there is both political and social, but that was it's going to have tremendous cultural impact when the vanguard of the progressive side and, and the judicial branch is um, are, are women who are racial or ethnic minorities. So th- this is, th- I think this is the heart of, of the question. And what we're seeing are spinoffs of, of this culture question that fall into our laps in politics around CRT or around the Second Amendment or, you know, you name it. But the... Th- the political fights um, or, or the fights about how our society should be structured, I think, are really cultural fights that are grounded in an identity crisis that the nation's is going through. You know, it does raise this uncomfortable thought experiment of would these dynamics be better served if part of that progressive wing of the Supreme Court was represented by a white man as well? Meaning, you know, I mean, to be fair, you do have one of the most conservative justices as an African-American man, right. Clarence Thomas. So you have a little bit of, you know, breaking down the, the familiar or easy categories, right? But but part of the issue is, you know, you're all about the kind of the communication and the dialogue. When those dynamics exist, it just seems to reinforce sort of pre-existing, almost prejudicial structures, right? Absolutely. And I, I mean, the the again the symbolism of it is easy to weaponize um when you say if you are on a conservative um who looks at the court and says you know we're just looking to protect the constitution um make america great again reestablish the american identity and 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 not surrender to these identity politics or identity attacks from the other side the other side looks very different from your side um not just on the court if you go into congress i think something like you know, over 90% of the Republicans in Congress are are white. And and on the Democratic side, I think like nearly 40% are people of color. Um, the number of women on, on either side is it's unequal, more more Demo- more uh female Democrats than female Republicans. So our, our representation um in Congress and the highest court in the land are there is like a racialized and gendered version of the ideology such that when we have political battles over healthcare, um, one side is going to be heavily white male and Christian making an argument for one thing. And the other side is going to be people of color and women making an, an argument for something very different from what we have now. And that's not good. You know, the, the, the ontology of the of sort of like the, of race and gender on these political issues would suggest that the real Americanism is protected by a very certain kind of person on the right. And those who don't appreciate the country or those who want to fundamentally redesign it are represented by a different set of, of groups on the left. And uh, you know, very quickly, if you, again, go back to the polling, most Americans on both sides of the political aisle want democracy reform. Most uh, want a better version of of the current country, of our current country, but we don't trust the other side to be able to be part of the delivering of of that better version. And um, that has said it's having disastrous consequences on both our ability to establish social trust and the ability to, to ensure our democracy works for everyone. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. 
Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. I stand before you again tonight, after almost two terms as your president, to tell you I am more optimistic about the future of America than ever before. So this brings up the question of solutions for me, because on the one hand, I, I, I hear and appreciate what you guys are saying about the, the weaponization of symbolism. On the other hand, it, it shouldn't be beyond our sort of like creative imagination or creative empathy. Um, I'm not black, but I look at Katanji Brown Jackson on the Supreme Court and I'm like, yes, you know, <laughs> I, I have a really strong memory. Um, in 2011, I went to Sierra Leone. It was the first time I had traveled to the African continent. And I was shocked and so into the fact there was Obama artwork everywhere right. because he was such a powerful symbol of, of success and progress. And, you know, look, a, a black man in um, in the White House as president. So there must be some way. And I feel like it can't be that hard to, to have people extend a little bit of, you know, creative imagination. I don't know what to call it to the project of equality and to the project of you know, let's get everyone onto an equal page here. I mean, Ted, how do you see solutions to that? Because there's there's got to be some to this intractable problem. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the lower hanging fruit, which is still very high for for um, it's still a high bar for folks to reach, um, it is institutional kinds of things. You know, is there a way that we can craft a system that accounts for the distrust in the system? from the public and the distrust among the public and, and with regards to one another. So if, if uh, we've become so partisan that primaries, uh, gerrymandering and, you know, election outcomes are pretty much predictable before anyone casts a vote, then either we can make the people better so that they vote according to the policy preferences and character and these sorts of things. And, and they break the, the system because they're, they're not voting according to party, or we can make it, more difficult for parties to rig the system such that they they actually don't have to fight very hard to keep seats. And the latter version is an easier uh, course of action to take, even though, as we've seen with some of the fights in, in this Congress around voting rights legislation has, has demonstrated. But but I do think there might be a place for, you know, ranked choice voting and multi-member districts and, you know, getting rid of... Um, you know, reforming the Electoral Count Act, like all of these procedural um, statutory kind of actions we can take to ensure that our democracy mitigates the ill intent that democratic actors bring into the system. And we've, we, you know, we've been successful at that. We passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments after the Civil War that got rid of slavery, made formerly enslaved people citizens, and then at least gave the men the right to vote. And then within, you know, a couple of decades, literacy tests, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, took that right away through Jim Crow. And then we passed the Voting Rights Act of, of 65. And in 2013, uh, the Supreme Court decided in Shelby v. Holder that the, the, the teeth of the Voting Rights Act were no longer constitutional. And, and we saw a, a range of changes to voting laws. So if we, it, the, the, there is the necessary work of changing our laws and policies to create a fairer America, but that work is wholly insufficient to ensuring that better America endures. 
And here is where I think that we, we go back to the culture. Um, we, we need to reform our democratic culture more than our institutions. Um, and we need leaders who will insist on this and a, for a system that rewards their courage instead of you know, their sort of partisan sensationalism. Very easy to say. Um, but I think you're right. The message is there. The symbols are there. But the messengers are not people that are, are that there is no single messenger that is widely respected um, in our country. And I don't think there has been one since maybe Colin Powell left the military in the in the mid late 90s. And even he within certainly the moment he met uh, Trumpism and Obama and and the sort of far right conservative movement in the mid 2000s uh, or latter part of the 2000s, the he, even he was um, deemed you know persona non grata. Ne- never mind the Iraq War and some of the uh, the UN stuff. So again, crisis of leadership, a crisis of character, and um, without the right messenger, the message alone, uh, I, I don't think is G- Gettysburg Address without Lincoln. I have a dream without King. Same words, but the messenger matters. Can I ask you quickly if there's anyone you see in the political landscape right now that you think has potential? Like anywhere you're like, that guy's cool or that woman is cool, you know? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, and I've come up empty, not because I'm not inspired by folks in Congress uh, or or elsewhere, but because I don't know if those folks will have the wide appeal necessary to bring cross-ideological bipartisan coalitions together. Um, uh, but there are absolutely principles, like, you know, one person that maybe most of your audience has never heard of is Lauren Underwood, a congresswoman out of Illinois, a former nurse in a purple district, the black woman, young, you know, under 35 or so. And um, it just does the work of, of like trying to make life better for her constituents and voting her conscience whenever issues arise. And uh, and I have zero confidence that she could be a figure that the nation would rally around, despite the fact that she, in my view, models much of what it means to be a, a good American. I think Katanji Brown Jackson models good Americanism and her patriotism, love of constitution, reverence for institutions and structures, and yet her ability to identify with her um, her heritage and her her gender, et cetera. Uh, and and we saw how how she was treated. So I haven't given up the project yet of of seeing you know of taking a look at at who's out there to see um, who might have that potential. But the you know these are unfortunately when we look through American history, the people that have been the most important to the country are folks that we didn't recognize their importance until after they were gone. Um, and you know Lincoln is another example. King is yet another example. Um, and so I, I'm I'm not sure. I wonder about this quest for leaders and the way in which it can be somewhat in tension with the change in culture you talked about. Because some of the change in culture that you write about and speak about is all of us individually taking some responsibility for the society in which we live, whether that's local or more national. And there is a tension in mm-hmm. that and leadership. So there's a there's a hope for there's going to be the great leader, and and that person is going to change the tenor and the tone. Certainly, in the left, or even the center left of the Democratic Party, the belief of you know had Hillary Clinton been elected, the pathway of our country would have been X, and mm-hmm. X would have been so much better than the current pathway. And uh, on a not inconsiderable part of the right, there's a sense of Trump may have been flawed morally and personally in all sorts of ways, but the directionality that he was leading in terms of policy was the one that a lot of people wanted to go toward. I think it's important to push against some of that leadership quest. Yeah, I mean, yes, it would be wonderful if we lived in a world where there were multiple people uh, who were embodying some of the sentiment and approach and culture that you talk about. But I don't know that the absence of that is nearly as much of an issue as mm. the hope for it or the feeling that it's an imperative, right? Maybe it'd be better if we all just embodied some of the cultural realities of we, we, we literally, <laughs> the Rodney King School of American history, we all just have to get along um, and just elected some very boring pragmatic leaders, right? right. Who, who, who just got, who got shit done, right? They weren't full of rhetoric. They weren't. Florida, they weren't Obama on the one hand, or 
you know, Reagan on the right, if you were the other, a lot of people love Reagan's flights of rhetorical fancy. Uh, they just were people who got stuff done. But the cultural hard lifting was was us, you, me, everybody. Yeah, I, I, I would love for it to. And so I think you're right. So I think the first thing I will say is um, we now have a society that doesn't create heroes in the same way. Um, I think we're still very much a hero culture. Anytime there's something that something terrible happens, first thing we do is identify like who was the hero in the situation or if something beautiful happens, like who's the person responsible. We just, I don't know if it's an American thing or if it's human nature, but we like, we look for the person that embodied the incredible thing we just saw or, or who we aspire to be. Um, and uh, sociologists have written about this, but they've suggested that today the path to heroism National heroism is not what it used to be. It's not politics. It's not military service, but it's celebrity um, because there's less appetite for people who strive to be great and make mistakes. And so we we're less forgiving, which was typically the path to, to heroism in the past. And instead, we're infatuated with people who continue to like make mistakes um, incessantly and and we can't turn away from them and suddenly their name recognition that we, we sort of become obsessed with this person because of their their um imperfections and their their norm breaking and their inability to to stop making mistakes and that celebrity status leads them into the world of politics where lots of times name recognition is um is like half the battle. So, so there is a real question to, to your point that, you know, maybe we don't have a society that is ripe for a hero um, uh, because the way heroes ascend these days aren't the kind of people we want, we want leading us. But to, to your, your main point about maybe the hero isn't just doesn't play the same role. Maybe, maybe we're looking in the wrong place. I think that's actually right. And my tendency is, is to think that uh, the, the hero is the national figure that people around the country can look to and draw inspiration from and model in their communities. And I think in 21st century America, we are more likely to see heroes at the local level, sort of a grassroots heroism that bubbles up. But the tension that you mentioned is that there are, these people do exist. They always have, and they, they exist today. But as their heroism at the grassroots level is bubbling up, their leadership is is moving upwards and, and outwards. It's being met by a very divisive kind of politics nationally. All you know, school board races nationalized. You know, candidates for for the school board are, are saying how much they love Trump as a way of suggesting, you know, that Trump cares about their their six thousand student school district. Um, but but claiming fealty or loyalty to the party, that's the best way to do so in in a very tight tight area. And so now every mayor's race, every governor's race, every school board race is like Trump versus AOC. Pick your team and vote up and down the ballot for your team. And and so and that's advantageous for the parties uh, because it, it makes the messaging very clear and makes the choices very clear. But it's horrible for the country. And it actually doesn't create conditions for leadership to um, principle leadership anyway to arise. So the tension, I, as I see it, is between local heroes and leaders trying to make our their community stronger and live up to the principles of our country being met by a very divisive, hyper-partisan kind of politics that um, our system incentivizes. And um, and they're sort of meeting in the middle. And, you know, it remains to see which side prevails. Trump versus AOC sounds like a great pay-per-view event. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I was going to say, I got a really freaky image in my head when you started talking about, you know, our celebrities are our heroes now of like some Lincoln-type figure married with a Kim Kardashian-type figure. And on the one hand, I was like, this is horrible. On the other hand, I was like, maybe, maybe this could work. Well, well there, was that, there was that bizarre moment, right, where like Kanye West was going to run for That's president. right. You might, you might right. have had your you might have had your moment there, Emma. Okay, Kanye is no Lincoln figure, but okay. <laughs> well, <that's for> sure. <laughs> and I think The Rock is polling maybe like fifth um, uh, among re potential Republican twenty four candidates, twenty twenty four candidates, like fifth or sixth or so. But he's not, you know, way way out of there. Um, and look, Reagan was uh, a celebrity before he ascended. I mean, granted, he like was a governor and had, had done some some things in government. But, um, you know, we made a celebrity out of John F. Kennedy. We made a celebrity out of the Obamas. 
Um, and even Bill Clinton, you know, playing the saxophone on Arsenio Hall. Like we, there is a, there's a celebrity quality to the presidency that is becoming more common, certainly over the last 40 years than was maybe the case, certainly in the 19th century, but, but even in the first half of the, of the 20th century. And I don't, you know, there, I think there are good principled celebrities who could probably, you know, Schwarzenegger, you know, he was reelected governor of, of uh, California. So people must elect him to, to some degree, but um, if, if celebrity is now the path to political leadership and national heroism, you know, I don't know if that general pathway is, is the best one. So Ted, I have a very specific question from your book that I'm sure relates somehow to the conversation we've been having. I can't quite have, you know, <laughs> pull that thread right now, but it's about sacrifice because you write in the book that, you know, part of the solution to all of this is solidarity, right? Like that, that everyone, I, I'm going to quote from the book, needs to view racism at, as fundamentally at odds with the core of the American idea and the well-being of the United States. And then you also write that you can't exercise solidarity without sacrifice. On the other hand, you also make the point that there are a lot of institutions that that have you know racist structures. Mm-hmm. That if we did away with with those kinds of things, you know, if we had reform on housing, healthcare, college tuition, et cetera, a, a lot of people would benefit of all races and ethnicities and across the United States. So I was wondering because I don't think you get into this in the book. What exactly you're picturing when you when you say that it requires sacrifice? Because on the one hand, like sure, yeah, that sounds right, and on the other hand, I'm like. I don't know. Does it though? Mm. Like, like, does it? Because I feel like I, I certainly know people who have gotten more on board the project of of uh, this is a conversation on race in the United States, and I don't see that they've had to sacrifice anything to do it. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. So it, especially the the point about sacrifice in the book, I'm I'm kind of talking about like a social sacrifice and not so much an economic one. Um, I actually think ridding our structures of racism. Um, will has a net economic benefit for all of us, no matter your race or ethnicity. So uh, I'm not expecting people, you know, there's probably a class aspect of fairness in America that will require, you know, those who make the most money to pay more taxes, whatever. But what I'm talking about in the book is um, if, if we, if you live in a society where there is a social hierarchy, where there is a racial hierarchy, um, and you set about making that hierarchy go away, leveling the playing field so that we're all on the same level. Those who used to be at the top of the hierarchy will sense the leveling as lost. And instead of rejecting that loss or, or taking that loss as punishment for something they didn't do, they have to re- accept that loss as part of the sacrifice toward the broader good of the American project. And so uh, if things like affirmative action, um, you know, different, maybe a different tax scale or college tuition or, or whatever, these have economic impacts. But the reason they're resisted so much is because of the social signal they send that, oh, these people get help and you don't. Those folks who have all this college debt, they get help, but you who paid it as you went or didn't go to college, you don't get any help. And it's the sort of the sense of fairness that's connected to status that makes these policy things, political things, so difficult to achieve. So the the idea of sacrifice here is for those who will sense the leveling of the playing field as a loss of social status need to be okay with that sacrifice. But I also say after you have to be willing to sacrifice, I also say forbearance, which means that those of us um, who historically have been at the bottom of the racial hierarchy, as we are brought to level, we have to be very careful about insisting that the the leveling not only just be level from this point forward, but you have to like account for all of the wrongs done to all of the people and all of the time before today. And at some point you have to say, we are going to start anew. We're going to start afresh. And that means you have to practice forbearance. You, you have to let some things go and not insist that you be uh, compensated or, or get retribution or, or even vengeance for the wrongs that were done to, to folks in your group in, in a decade, centuries past. And so that meeting in the middle, um, sacrificed on one end, forbearance on the other, difficult for both, but I think absolutely necessary, again, to the product of like a, a liberal, egalitarian, multiracial democracy. You know, essentially that at some point, we all have to allow the past to in fact be the past. And the rub is what's the what's the dividing line between the actual past and the past bleeding into the present. But as a general operating principle, uh, you know, we all know this from relationships. Certainly we live in a culture of uh, 
massive amounts of introspection and psychotherapy, which do rely a bit on, you know, coming to terms with our personal past, but it's also at some point becoming whole with that personal past and not carrying it as a constant millstone. Um, and the same thing I think is true for social collectives and those that have a hard time doing so, you know, it's not a happy pathway uh, Bosnia, Serbia in the nineties, uh, Israel, mm. Palestine, uh, Russia, Ukraine. I mean, holding on to the past as an ever present is, is rarely a healthy formula for cohesiveness. No, I, I agree. And especially when the, if you carry the past as like a backpack, if it's like a burden that you're, that you're demanding someone help, um, relieve you of, as opposed to carrying the history in you, um, which I think is an app, something that all of us must do. We not forget history, but carry it with us, right. but have our eye on like where we're all trying to go instead of insisting that people pay attention to the burden you're carrying and, and fix that before we can take a step forward together. So I, I do think there, there is a way history can be a burden. Um, and then there is a way history can be, um, you know, fuel energy for, for progress and which version of, of our history, or like how, how we use our history towards the, the project of, of our country is just as important as, as which histories uh, or which stories about ourselves uh, we tell ourselves, um, because I think that that either fills our hearts and allows us to walk with it, or it feels like the, the knapsack and, and weighs us down. That's a, that's a wonderful metaphor. And so don't forget it, but don't fuel it. Right. So Ted, we look forward to subsequent books, to your voice being an antidote to so much of the relentless, shrill, hysterical negativity that is in our world. You have a way of both articulating acutely our challenges, our problems, but without the rank bitterness that is mm. so prevalent in discussing those problems, particularly about race, particularly about law. And again, that way in which you articulate the, we need to remember our past, um, but not necessarily carry it as an ever-present burden. Mm. And that sensibility amongst others is I think is much a way out. And while it is true that we are not replete with heroes in our political life, uh, we certainly have voices like yours, which come awfully close. So thank you for joining us for this conversation. Yeah, thank you both. I really, really enjoyed it. And thanks for being part of the Progress Network. Absolutely. My pleasure. Love it. Thank you, Ted. So Emma, we've had a lot of stimulating and I think moving conversations, but that along with the conversations that we had with Arthur Brooks, a little bit with John Wood last year, really fill me with a degree of, uh, I guess, hope about where we're going. Yeah, I know. And I think one thing that really works as a method for that, and we talked about this in the beginning of the, the episode, which is hard to illustrate in a conversation, is the power of storytelling and, and the power of narrative. You know, I can say, having read Ted's book, that the strategy that he employs, but that really works, you know, hearing about his own personal life experiences and the life experiences of others. For me, it's like travel, right? It, it has that same educational component of opening your eyes, seeing things in a different way and and pulling you in, although it's educational, not on your mind, but through the heart. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, and I think that's something that it's something you you experience in the doing, right? Or you experience what you've just said in reading his book. It's harder to do in a 10 minute conversation, but bringing to life that there is a there's a way to live these ideas. It's just very hard to show evidence of that in the political realm. It's very hard to show evidence of that working as a campaign trope, right? Although certainly moving individual stories are often useful for, for people when they're in the political arena. I, I guess I'm left with what I'm left with with a lot of these voices and individuals, which is this way of approaching our conflicts and and the way of conceiving of our solutions is absolutely the right way to go, even though it's hard to find traction within a public arena, even though in the moment uh, it it has the same challenges and the same question that I've been going over and over again in my head for years of, can you stand on a soapbox and say with any urgency, everybody calm down, right? And the reality is when people are hysterical, no, you can't, but, or rather you can, but nobody will hear it. But over time, 
maybe, maybe, maybe. And Ted is kind of is living that, living that in his work, and finding real traction. I mean, he's had some significant both accolades and support, as he should. Mm-hmm. So I take some comfort from that. Yeah, and I think that the more touch points people have, the more like felt experience or felt sense is what they say sometimes in Buddhism of that sensibility and action the easier it is to understand what we're talking about right when we're talking about this on a conceptual level because it feels better like like in the body it feels better to go with the approach that you just outlined and not the approach that we're kind of stuck in right now in terms of polarization and intense demonization of the other all right on that note thank you for having these conversations with me emma thank you all for listening and getting the newsletter what could go right and checking out the progress network and please keep joining us thank you If you want to find out more information about The Progress Network and what could go right, please visit our website at theprogressnetwork.org. And if you want something other than gloom and doom when you open your email in the morning, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's a roundup of progress news from around the world. And that's at theprogressnetwork.org slash newsletter. And please, if you like the show, if you could tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would help us out a ton. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas. The show is produced by Andrew Steven and edited by Jordan Aaron, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Puglomerate. Thank you so much for listening.